The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Mandy Bishop is a graduate of the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. Known and revered for her deft impersonation of Australia's first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, Mandy is also an actor, comedian, musician and writer of considerable accomplishment. Her theatre credits are extensive and include a variety of repertoire. The Pillow Man, Boston Marriage, Fallen Angels, Vicious Streaks, Angry Penguins and Wuthering Heights. On television, she has been seen in Heartbreak High, Blue Healers, All Saints, Big Sky, My Place, Rake and Drop Dead Weird. Most recently, she appeared in Anyone Can Whistle for neglected musicals at the Hayes Theatre. In 2011, Mandy co-wrote and created the four-part sitcom At Home with Julia, in which she portrayed the sitting PM. She has acted in Sydney's legendary Wharf Review since 2008, inhabiting a vast array of political and pop culture characters, each demonstrating a penetrating examination and superlative execution. Mandy examines the craft of humour, her artistic relationship with Julia, and the joy of satire and review in this sparkling episode of The Stages Podcast. You've been around microphones all your life. Yeah, but it's, I'm always fascinated in who's got the next gear. I recognise one of these little guys. It's a tra- track thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and volume. I love it. All of the do-da-day. Good. Well, hello, old friend. Hello, and can I say congratulations for continuing with this podcast. I love your subjects, and I love the information you squeeze out of them. I continue to surprise myself. It's quite um, extraordinary. Uh, one of my favourite words. Um, extraordinary? A few people pick me up and saying, oh, do oh they? it's ex- ex- extraordinary. But extraordinary is a great word, great. isn't it? Yeah. E- extraordinary. I get in trouble for interesting. Right. <laughs> so I'm obviously lacking in vocab. Well, it's funny how, and you'd find it with your characters too, that, that there are certain vocal tics or vocal a vocal footprint which which carries all of that um, vocabulary and language. Yeah, you find uh, it's it's music, isn't it? 
it always comes back to music. They'll have a little, let's say, a thematic motif. And that's that character's little, not catch cry, but um, it'll be a way that we can hear them repeatedly in various situations. And that's how we kind of get into them. So, um, yeah, well, it depends how specific you want, you want to get. But, for instance, Julia Gillard, when I was learning her, and I remember not having her, and I had stage managers on the job before I started doing her for the Wharf Review, saying, no, you have, no, it doesn't sound anything like her. And I remember, I think I was moving house at the same time, and I had my laptop set up on a milk crate. I had no furniture in the house. I was leaving the house I was, I was moving in. And um, I had a little laptop and the internet. YouTube had just sort of started to be a big and easy tool for actors. And I was looking at her in question time and she was talking about work choices. And it just so happened she was attacking the Liberals for their work choices um, introduction policies. And she just kept saying the work choices, work choices fridge and your work choices magnet and you get out your work choices beer mug and... And, and, and those two words, work choices, got me into her and I'd failed miserably up until then. And then, and the rest was just sort of, you just fatten it. Once your brain gets the sound and where it might be coming out of your soft palate, hard palate, facial bones, you kind of, and, and where you feel it's supported from in your breath or in your body or what, what has to tense and what has to relax to let that sound out. It can make, it's really interesting. It, it, I might not be exactly like her, of course, because she's changing all the time, but, uh, and I have to study her again this year, but it's like the brain can expand the vocabulary, it, the sonic vocabulary, to imagine how she would say the next word. And quite often you're not entirely off track. It's a weird thing. It, it just sort of, your imagination can just pour into one spot and then bleed out and influence other phonetics. It's, uh, you do have to check it, of course, but sometimes I learn accents that way too. Because um, I haven't traveled to many of the places that we've been fortunate enough to represent on stage, especially in the UK. I mean, it's a different accent every 10 miles. Um, but you have heard it somewhere in your mind. And if you get one or two words, you can kind of it really is make-believe, but you're not entirely incorrect when you extrapolate on those couple of sounds. It's certainly a mindset to to uh, to find the key to unlock the the voice. Um, I'm fond of the odd impression or impersonation, whatever you like to call it. Um, can we see some? No, no, because this is oh. my point. Because when somebody says, "Oh, go and do so and so," yes, you can't. When you put on the spot, you have to. It has to be caught. You have to catch it unawares or something, or just be. Um, assumed by that person, that persona, to to uh, let the sound come out. But well, you know, if I suddenly said, "Now do so and so," maybe because it's in your muscle memory now and you've done it. Because so I'm because rehe- I'm currently rehearsing, I can whip out a some you can access sometimes it, access it quickly. But but um, what we, back to your point? Absolutely. But also that's because you're an actor. Mm. I, I I would assume if you hadn't done the full body training or experienced that full immersion. Um, from your with your whole person and you were a person that can just do some funny voices I would assume it would be easier for you to whip them out it, it, you really do have to 
I mean, for instance, when I start on a character, I have to draw them. And I'm, I'm not an artist. <laughs> I'm certainly not a drawer. But for me, if I can kind of make my hand find the shape, that's it. some of those attributes that I get down on paper stick with me, you know, the shape of the face, perhaps the way they move their hands. I can try and draw them. Who was I looking at the other day? Um, oh, I'm playing Anthony Albanese. And I, so I'm watching how his chest falls, how his, how his upper arms stay by his sides, whether they're forward or in line with his chest or a little bit back. And, and knowing their lives, I mean, knowing so much about their public, well, public and personal lives as we do, you can actually see all of that in a person too, whether they've had a heartbreak or whether they're, they're currently on the back foot with opposition or whether they're talking about something specific and he did a little thing where he turned a knob with his fingers and, and I thought, oh, he's actually very, he's dexterous with his fingers. I remember watching Elvis for years of my life and watching how dexterous he was with his fingers and then he gets on the piano sometimes in his live concerts and I think, well, of course, those fingers have individual voices so they are the way Elvis moves his hands and so when I saw that fantastic, I really loved the Baz Luhrmann film of Elvis because I thought it was very true to Elvis's life and I noticed that young fellow who, and he'd obviously studied every fingertip and it was perfect. I know because I've, I've stupidly watched them all as a young girl being in love with Elvis as I was. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, you very much. You had me at hello, old friend. <laughs> God, there's a lot of traffic on the road this morning. I feel like we're on the footpath recording this. COVID's over and it's Saturday morning and it's spring <laughs> and Saturday morning sport it's and not, shopping. It's not normally like this, but uh, anyway, my apologies, listener. We live, um, in the, we live in the real world. And you've got the glorious Mandy Bishop, so um, what more could you ask for? Mandy, um, what do you enjoy most about being on stage? Uh, the fact that it takes every synapse of my brain to um, feel like I'm inside it. And then, of course, it's enormous fun being part of entertainment, whether that's dramatic or comedic. Um, it's a fun job to do, of course. I, I think you wouldn't do it, you wouldn't continue to do it if you didn't enjoy it and you didn't enjoy the audience enjoying it. Um, but for me, Either I'm suffering in IQ um, or it's just something that really, this is a terrible phrase, but it really turns my brain on. So I love um, being the vessel and understanding story. And so that's literature. But I understand, I love understanding story in a, in a sound form and then a visual form. And that becomes physical. So it's almost every corner of my hemispheres. Mm. If that makes sense, mm. and I and I, I never get bored with a long-running show. I never get bored because who are we to say, well, that's that's right, that's perfect? And I'm not there fixing and fixing and studying and studying. I just think every time you go on stage, you have to absolutely honour the audience. It's they they're paying to see you, and I know some people do get bored in long-running shows of the same character. I can understand that, but I. Um, I just love it too much. I love working with other people on stage. It's they're often better than me. I, I love uh, I love getting what I'm getting from them. Also, the minute you start to waver in concentration, I find 
um, is the minute I start fucking up. <laughs> yeah. Does that ha- happen often? Look, sometimes, you know, let's say, because we've all been on stage in moments of our lives where something big is happening off stage. It might be something a bit traumatic or something equally um, as elating, like someone, you know, your brother's getting married or something like that. And sometimes that can distract you. Um, I remember going on stage, uh, we opened a show on the night of 9-11. And I remember thinking, this is, and, and we were in a comedy and I feel so terrible for the writer because he really wanted that play to soar. And, and it's a great piece, a two-hander. But because it was a two-hander and we'd just been watching that footage all day and I don't know whether you remember, but we'd never seen anything like that in the Western world. It's, it's very naive to say that because there's been wars for centuries in all the other parts of the world. But there's something about the collapse of those buildings that I thought, why am I trying to be funny on stage tonight? It just doesn't feel right at all. I actually think we should just stop and have a conversation with the audience about what do we think this means? We've gone this far and and um, a financial centre of one of the places of that we look to follow in the world was um, being attacked. And that means we need to think about something. So that was hard, yeah. Yeah, I was boring that night. I was very boring. <laughs> um, you've been very industrious in creating your own work throughout your career, your own work and your own opportunity. That's probably an essential part of survival in the industry isn't it yeah you can't just rely on the the phone to ring to to use that um that cliche that cliche that we get told we're in a drama school actually well you went to the same drama school whopper absolutely instilled in us get out there and be active and a lot of whopper people have written musicals and plays and television series i think there's one being written about robbie williams as we speak and broadway musicals broadway musicals Mm. Um, composing films like it's 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 exciting isn't it to see our friends go for it um I think one of the t- the first times I did it was cabaret uh, 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 writing my own cabaret shows because actually no bite my chili was my first one um that I did with Scott Cameron Eden Playstead Lisa Adam and Adam Champion and it was just we were new on the ground in terms of auditions, so we were getting some look-ins, but not enough to make a living. And it was either that and waiter or waitress in a cafe or pub, which I was also doing, or um, also create something. So we did, and and it also ticked all those boxes of we choreographed ourselves, we, we wrote j- jokes, we... Um, arranged songs. Scott did most of the arranging, the arranging this musically. Is a, a, an acapella group. Too, yeah, wasn't it? bite yeah. my chili. It was called, mm. and Scott did most of the arranging. But Eden and I also had a crack at it, and that was really hard. My first degree was in music, and I still found it very hard to arrange for five voices. But um, that was fantastic, and we also produced ourselves until we got a, a, a pro- producer on board, Anissa McCarthy, and she was fabulous. And we toured around, we went to the comedy festivals and we won money on Red Faces and that paid for our petrol to get from Melbourne to Adelaide. I mean, we did it. It was so fantastic. We performed at the bottom of the State Theatre when that was a fantastic little cabaret venue. It was the Statement Bar, I think it was called back then. We got into the Tilbury and they gave us great advice on our new show, which was mainly Don't Do It, Go Back to the Old One. Um, (laughs) we We had shocking reviews for some of it. We had... We mucked up in 
um, accommodation and got terrible letters written to us. We, we used that for publicity, which we drove around in a van, seriously, and, and bought a trailer from secondhand auctions and made our own sets and costumes and dyed our own outfits. And it was really, that was amazing. We made more money in that show than we did individually, I'd say, well, certainly in my case, for the next 10 years, um, it, per annum. It was a, it's just the force of a, of a collective. We underestimate it. We all wanted to get out of it by the time we finished it, thinking, oh, I've got to get back to my individual career. We just didn't... Become solo artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when really, there's, we, if you're in a group, listeners... If you're in a group or a trio or, a, you know, a combination thing, there is so much merit in that and enjoy it while you can. Of course you fight like cats and dogs, and you, but you always get back together and get on with it. I mean, we were, for instance, we were still busking as a group, as a successful group, in the tunnel of Central Railway Station between gigs, singing Christmas carols, and then we'd go off and do a proper paid gig that night, but we'd make shitloads because it was five voices and it sounded so good in the tunnel. And we'd busk at Bondi Market. In the Melbourne Comedy Festival, we were writing our new show all day, 8am till 6pm, because we just didn't have enough time in the day to get it up. And um, then we'd go and busk in restaurants on Brunswick Street and uh, Chapel Street. Like, we'd just literally walk in, and if they didn't kick us out, we'd still sing. We'd keep singing. And eventually they'd kick us out, so we got maybe two songs out. And then our show started at 11pm at night in a nightclub, Three Faces nightclub, which had never had a cabaret in it or a comedy act in it before. And so we were conjuring up an audience for that venue first time ever, but also for ourselves, and we were primarily a Sydney group. And the, ti- the things that you do, and then we'd start again at 8am the next morning, we, well, gee, we had the shits. The things you do when you're young and naive and, <laughs> and ambitious. Yes. <laughs> no fear. Yeah. No fear. Yeah. yeah. We had lots of fears, but being in a group really helped face those fears. And it was the improvisations that we did in that group that made me more confident in comedy later. You know, we busted through a lot of barriers. We each did, I'm sure. Dancing, we tapped in that. We carried our masonite floor around with us. I mean, yeah, you just do what you had to. You ran that um, cabaret room on Parramatta Road too. Side on cafe. Side on, that's right. I did that after beautiful Chelsea Plumley managed it for a while. She was producing it. So that what that was was, I think it was Sunday nights, and one person would come. I did a, a gig. Yeah, one man show. Yeah. I remember yeah. your show. Yeah. A lot of people did their one person show first off ever, and never did another one person show again. But because of that, they were so interesting. I mean, we had doctors and lawyers come in who could sing and have always wanted to do a cabaret. And then you hear this amazing story of their life of immigration and then they'd land here and then they went and studied and then did this and that and this happened to their parents and brothers and sisters. And and then in the end, you have fallen in love with them and their family and they were all in the audience and they'd all been reunited after 40 years apart. And it was... They were incredible stories. Um... I loved producing that because that sort of practice, I got to practice MC stuff and Chelsea did that very well before me. She could also play piano, well she also plays piano obviously, she's very smart and she played for them and some of those nights were also um, cabaret variety nights which was also a fabulous place to try out new stuff. Um, Eden placed it and I used to choreograph um, daggy duets and try and make them kind of slinky and um, 
if, I was always in love with Bob Fosse, so I can't dance, but I just used to pretend I could. <laughs> Theatre's an illusion, maybe. Oh, I know. <laughs> see, it, it reminds me of my application into WAPA. Um, I've told this story to my friends, so sorry, friends, you have to hear it again, but I auditioned for NIDA when I came out of my degree of music, and um, my darling friend Sheena Sanders says, oh, well, if you don't get that go to this place called WAPA. They're auditioning at NIDA and you get to sing for your audition as well. So I'd done singing for my, um, for my degree in music and I, turned, I rang them and Jeff Gibbs was on the phone. Ah, we're leaving on Friday. And it was Wednesday afternoon. And I said, oh, oh, look, I'm from the country and I actually didn't know about your course and um, I've just done a Bachelor of Music. I'd really love to be an actor. And Okay, well, come in on Friday morning and we'll see what you Just turn up at nine o'clock. And so I did. And it was in the parade, the old parade. And you remember the old foyer, skinny little foyer around the outside? And I sat there with him, and he's quite foreboding. He's a big man, but he's, ha- he's full of cheek. I quite liked him even then. Um, <laughs> I love how you're making him sound like Kenneth Williams. <laughs> Am I? Well, you do him. <laughs> um, hello, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't got I'll the range. Be, I mean, we must, we must stress that this is done with great affection. Oh, too, I love him. He was a, a great, great man. And, and, and a and talent. The West Australian Academy of Performing Arts would not be what what it was um, he got the funding Gibbs, yeah. he got the funding from Cameron McIntosh the triennial funding the first lot mm. and I and and um leaving Whopper oh I'll just go back to the audition story briefly so sitting there with him because he's very tall and he wasn't small and um he said well him we don't have any um we don't have any um application forms so you can just fill out the back of that magazine flyer and the, and it was a shrunken it was a what do you call that size that's half a four a eight, right? Uh, so <laughs> I don't know. eighteen, and I filled out the um, application form. It was miniature. I mean, you had to squint to see it. And for dance experience, we didn't have to dance for our auditions back then. And I'm pretty sure I would have been sacked at the fucking first five minutes. But um, it said I, I put ballet because I had done it at six years old, but I did quit at seven. So I thought, oh, that's just that's being stupid. And then I put jazz because we did do that in high school but it was like half an hour a week and I, they, I spent all of those classes watching the girls who could actually do it so I thought that's just shit and in and I put aerobics because oh, I've done aerobics and it wasn't it wasn't nothing um you know step touch and then and then I thought no I have to be honest at parties <laughs> following a whole lot of scribble like this girl's nuts welcome Welcome to Whopper. So I was very lucky, very lucky that I got in. And then at the end, back to Jeff, beautiful Gibbs, um, he gave me the graduation award and and he just picked me up and rolled me over his tummy. You're like, if you had a cuddle with him, there's no way that you would touch the floor. And I remember I sort of went up two feet. I was going, congratulations, you deserve it, or whatever he said. And I thought, I've always loved his... I loved his eye for talent. He was he you know he's a very busy man and we didn't always have him um for the lessons that he was assigned for because it was also off raising money for the academy which he did incredibly well. And um but you you knew if if it entertained Jeff you're starting to employ some of the techniques that they were teaching. Mm-hmm. Other, and, and so you, I can still hear that that huge guffaw that that, yeah. that, 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 that big belly laugh that, Yeah. Um, 
that he would admit, yes, if he, if he approved. Yeah. But also, one time I got a report from him that I didn't think was about me because I just thought, look, I thought I'm, I'm laden with faults, but I don't think these are my particular ones. I just didn't, I thought, he's confused. I mean, there are six classes that he teaches of 25 kids each and he's busy, he's a busy man. And listeners, he was also performing at the Hole in the Wall Theatre at the same time, at the Madge, he had a illustrious career as um, had an illustrious career as an actor, as well as a director sometimes. And um, and and I took them. I knocked on his door. Hello, Poppet, and or whatever he called us. I said, Hi, Jeff. Um, look, I thanks for my report. Um, I don't think it's. I'm just not sure. I mean, I know what you mean by it, but it sounds like it's about someone else. Oh, oh. What, what 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 year are you in? <laughs> and I said, Well, I'm in second year now. And he said, Oh, you're doing um you're doing Canterbury's Tales? And I'm no, we're on to Shakespeare or whatever it was. And he said, Oh, oh and then he just sat there and looked at me for a while and then he said, Ah, what what I need to teach you is don't play the end of the scene. And he was straight onto it and he gave me one of the best things that you can learn as an actor, you know, because we're getting into the drama. And so, of course, we come on as Cleopatra and she's already dead with her ass. No, darling, she's deciding to die. And, um, and he talked about voice and um, physical attributes and how to use them. And it was really, I just got a, I got a great shoot. And he was very good-natured about it. And I know some people were too scared to go there mm. with him, but mm. I, I think he actually really didn't mind teaching I- I- in a fun way. Well, there was, some, there was some big personalities on the staff at that time. Yeah, which, the which, founders of the course. Yeah, which certainly uh, could be a bit intimidating to, yeah. to, to, to some people. Yeah. But, uh, but, but certainly their hearts uh, were, were in what Whopper was to, uh, was to become and, and had a great belief in, in it and its students. And just to give you an idea, there were 19, course, 19 subjects in first year. And do the math. That even with government funding, there's no way you could support that long term. Mm. Uh, that's not 19 part-time teachers because some of them doubled up. Like TAT was sometimes covered by contemporary dance teachers and stuff like that. And certainly repertoire was covered by um, vocal um, physiology and sort of and, and singing sometimes was covered also individually in the choir sections. But um, so some teachers were doubling up, but it was a very intensive course and very expensive to run. You had a good time in Loved Perth? It. Oh, Perth. yeah, Perth. The only place where the rent went down. <laughs> I paid $47.50 a week. No. Yeah, $42.50 a week for a room in a spa-laden townhouse in first year. But by third year, we were in an old house, which got burgled a few times, and I was paying thirty-seven fifty. I, I was, I did, I did. Um, Un- unheard of. Now. I know. I, I was sleeping in the living room, but oh. that's all you need. That's all you need. A couch. Um, David Mamet, the, uh, the playwright, uh, says that training institutions are about the students pleasing the tutors and not being themselves. Mm. I think I was perhaps a little bit guilty of that at times. Mm. What about you? I think we. I think we all are until until you realise it's not comfortable and then you start to be braver. Um, well, let's face it, an institution, by the very nature of the word, implies parameters, instruction, 
um, assessment, performance, feedback. I mean, that's what an institution does. Mm. So, so my approach was to find the part in the teachers that could see what I possibly liked to do and then try and open them up that way. And in that that regard, you kind of get so far. I mean, there's a lot of knockbacks. There were certainly other women in my year that got the leading lady parts, and it wasn't till it wasn't until third year that I kind of just thought, "Oh, this is fucked," and and ended up making some harder choices for the teachers to allow me to do. But in the end, they did. Um, and we also to to allow your creative differences out we did things like lunchtime concerts where we did really sort of avant-garde or um, Motown stuff or dance stuff that wasn't really dance but it was movement and I ended up doing a lot of extracurricular shows like for the Perth Festival and um, some improv stuff I got right into Tai Chi Um, yeah you find your way but you do have to be a bit industrious about it so what, what were the um, artistic outlets for little Amanda Bishop? Growing, growing up, where, where did you find uh, the gateway to the but, wonderful world of theatre? Yeah. Were, were your folks taking you to see live performance or were you a, a, a cinema buff? Oh, could you imagine in the country being a cinema buff? Where are the screens? I mean, even yeah, the television it. didn't work. <laughs> it was probably drive-ins then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Dad... And mum, who's a good sport, raising five children, P.S. Um, Dad loved to take us to movies, drive-ins, musicals. Um, so ballet when I was really little. Um, but that's because, I mean, I bless them. It, we, we were also serious horse riders. so And they don't really go together in, in the body because horse riding is turned in and ballet is turned out. So my hips were a mess. Um uh, fix that later. Um, then um, did I did? Pre- oh, I remember in second class. Um, I remember we were rehearsing the school play. I think I, no, I think I was in first class, so I was six, and we were rehearsing the school play, and I couldn't hear anyone reading their lines, and they were all, you know, they were all going. And then let me cast this spell over you. It's very good. Or something like that. I just I can't hear anyone. So when it came to my line, I probably shouted it. And then they then they changed my part, and I was allowed to be the fairy godmother. And Mum made me this amazing outfit. I was a flannel flower queen, or something like that. Um, and so that's when I started to understand. Oh, you just gotta just gotta hear it. Like how are they going to hear the story? So that was one thing. Dad taking he took us to. I mean. When, I mean, this is not really showbiz, but Star Wars came out and we drove four hours on a dirt road, seven people in the car without seatbelts because you didn't have to, um, station wagon Holden, down the Putty Road and um, to George Street Hoyt Cinemas and saw Star Wars when it opened. We also did the same for Greece and that was the end of it. I was never going to do anything else really. Like that that was such an amazing world to see and so beautifully acted that film. Like you think of Stockard Channing, she's a winner. Of course we hated her as a seven, eight year old child. Mm. But Mm. what a lesson in character. 
But they're all 30-somethings also. I know, teenagers. but we bought it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we saw that we went to Newcastle Civic Theatre for musicals, Oklahoma, The White Horse Inn, and something else. Um, um, but really I came in through music. Uh, I did a bit of theatre um, in high school, but I wasn't, I was too shy. I, I, didn't, I wasn't game to really speak out loud. And I was into science. So I sort of was following this science thing and then I wanted to do a combined degree in music and science. But the, the, the Bachelor of Music I did up at Armadale University said, no, 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 the subjects were all compulsory and we'd rather you do them um, simultaneously with your classmates rather than extrapolate, you know, going over five years or whatever the combined degree was going to be. And I thought, oh, well, that, that's kind of annoying but kind of a relief because it's less homework and less time at university. But then I did six years anyway because then I went to the Whopper. So then when I did my Bachelor of Music, that's when I got into a bit of opera, um, music hall, musicals. I also sort of curated cabarets and um, vocal groups for academic dinners at the college that I was at. Was your family supportive of following the, the artistic route rather than the sciences? And I really don't maybe... want to hang shit on my mum, but she really wasn't. <laughs> she she, did, well, she was this, frightened. This is something that, 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 that young artists come up against, yeah, isn't yeah, it? You, yeah. you want the blessing of your parents. Yeah. But sometimes they want what they consider the best for you yeah. and to get a, an occupation that is going to support you through life. Yeah, she Whereas was. Whereas the artistic life doesn't necessarily do that. Oh, it never, and it never will. She, she was worried. It, of course it came from concern and and um, possibly because she didn't finish her education so she was desperate for me to become a teacher actually and and she only ever said it occasionally but it wasn't until she came I mean and she came to every show and really enjoyed them and I guess it was probably five or ten years in of my professional life that she could see oh it's okay she can sort of string two cents together um, dad I think is a frustrated artist and um, ended up having to, after the war, coming back and running the farm, running the property for his father because his older brother wasn't showing any interest. So he curtailed his own sort of artistic ideas and he probably was always going to do it in some way because he was doing, I think, vet to start with or medicine, might have been medicine. Then he did agricultural economics and then came back to the bush. But it came out with him in other ways. He was a silversmith for a while and then drew and painted and then got into politics. Then he wrote wrote fiction. Then he wrote short fiction and won a lot of awards for it. Then he wrote poetry and won a lot of awards for it. And he's still sort of on that road. So he always was happy for me to follow it because he probably would have liked to. Um, Mum was worried until she wasn't. She's probably still worried, poor darling. <laughs> So when did when did mimicry come along? Did you? Oh, I reckon really young. I think as um, oh, I remember doing it from Red Faces. I remember um, was it Red Faces? Bobby Lim. What was that show? New Sa- Faces. Sounds, new Faces. New right. Faces out of bit, Newcastle. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think. Well, when you said Bobby Lim, of course, he, he started with a show called The Sound of Music. But okay, uh, you probably weren't born then. No, no. Oh, I, I don't know when I was born. But um, for the I've got it here in no. my research notes. Amanda Diana Bishop. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the goddess of hunting and worthy of love, um, mixed with a little bishop, which I think my great great grandfather was the son of a. Um, what do you call them? Not a, not a priest, but a high bishop. No, a, um, a, an archdeacon. A, not not high at all. Like a, a like pope. <laughs> <laughs> um, a minister, a minister. Let's say a minister. 
Yeah, and he was one of a lot of kids too. And he came out to Australia and got robbed on the way out and had to start again. God, and your I, bishops have been burgled a bit. Um, think, and yeah, well, I think everyone's got to share their wealth. Anyway, um, he worked for three months, I think, and his first payment was a saddle. And then he, so he could work for other people. And then he ended up buying a property and then sold that property. Just smart, smart, smart. His children, his children, uh, no, no, he married a girl who was raised by lovely Aboriginal women. I've just, that, that, that story is amazing. The early, early, early white Australia, not so early Indigenous Australia, but very grateful for their part in my life and my ancestors' life. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've forgotten what we're talking about. New faces. New faces. So, I can remember copying the girl that sang Alive, Eliza, Alive, Alive, Ahu, Alive, Alive, Ahu. And I remember being in the kitchen and mum and dad were in the sitting room and I just thought, oh, that's how you sing. Okay, I'll just practice that. And then and nobody took, nobody paid any attention. There's so many kids, who gives a shit? So then I thought, oh, yeah, just keep singing, singing on the horses and stuff. And then dad taught us songs. And then I went on a sport and recreation camp in sixth class and this lady, we had, the lady we had as our little lady who, little lady, she's lovely tall lady beautiful woman guitar player she sang and she sang us to sleep every night so then i just copied her voice you had a maria von trapp i had a maria she was so beautiful she was actually so beautiful that our teacher had ended up with her (laughs) (laughs) um uh then um uh, so that, and then I sang the kids to then I sang some girls to sleep in the boarding house. I just thought I know three songs. Blah, blah, blah. So then I th- I just think singing that's how I got into singing, and then you sort of learn from other singers, and that's sort of what it was. Um, when did I? And then when I was at drama school, I guess no, that was more kind of. I don't. I never want to mimic someone because I think that person needs to be done again. It's more I would rather impersonate someone because we can say something with them. So I'm not really interested in impersonating other people's performances of something. That to me is that, art that, on that art. Copying, that's, um, that's impersonation. What, what do you call it? Do you, do you, the art, what do you do? Is it mimicry? Is it impersonation? Is it impressions? I'd say it's impersonation of a real person. All right. Um, <clears throat> because I know in performance, in big shows or small shows, people say, oh, I'm doing the Angela Lansbury version of la la la. And I think, oh, that's great. And I'd hear it, but my instinct is to give some, to, to not do that. So in terms of for, for written, for previously written work and previously performed work by other artists, I try and give something different. But in the Wharf Review, I would absolutely try and be as true to Tanya Plibersek, Allegra Spender, um, Katie Gallagher, Jackie Lambie, Jackie Lambie, Michaela Cash, Michaela, Michaela <laughs> Cash. She's yeah, that's that yeah she yeah. Well, and now Anthony Albanese, and I'm not there. I, I've got four days to go of rehearsal, and I'm hoping it'll come. It'll all come. But he's got he's kind of um he's uh. Uh, he says ah a lot, and he, when you get up close to him, he's a little bit uh, he's, he's cute. His little lips move, but his his jaw doesn't move that much, and he's not as awkward as I'm being. He's um yeah, and then he and then he enjoys himself. 
but now I sound like um, I sound like an old man. <laughs> oh, help me, Jesus! You're perhaps best known, of course, for another. Yes, another, not that. <laughs> another prime minister who you nailed, um, uh, Julia Gillard. When did you first have a connection with with, with Julia? Um, and and how? What was the journey in finding her voice? So we were rehearsing, we were in the production The Pillow Man in, at Belvoir and I auditioned for The Wharf Review and I'd auditioned before and hadn't got it and, um, and my darling friends had continued to do it beautifully. Because it started of course with Drew Forsyth, Jonathan Biggins and Phil Scott and then they introduced a, a fourth player, a, a female player. Yes. I th- um. I need to check with them about that. I think Linda Nagel or Valerie Bader or Genevieve Lemon... Started as one of the Wharf yeah, Review and Jackie, cast. And Jackie um, uh, Weaver and Maggie Dentz. Helen and, Delamore. Yes, Helen came along a little bit... Like, actually, Helen, I think, filled in for Valerie first and then came on board as a more regular person. But the early girls were Geraldine Turner... Linda Nagel, Genevieve Lemon, Valerie Bader, and they worked with them in Three Men and a Baby Grand. I think, well, some of them did and some of them didn't. And then they did uh, Three Men and Abroad, or Three Men, is that right? Mm. Um, uh, abroad and Two Men, and then Abroad and Two Men or something. Sorry, I'm, I'm buggering all of this up, but the listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about. And I saw some of those shows, and we all saw some of them on the ABC, The Dingo Principle starting in... 1987 and then 94 was three men and a baby grand but they had women come in each week Mm. and then those ladies performed with them in the review starting in 2000 at STC after other shows at night time late at night and then their audiences just grew and Robin Nevin who had championed them said I think you need to make it political and political only and so they changed it and then it grew, grew to this amazing thing where they became the longest running season in the STC's program, which was fantastic. Ten weeks. It was, it was amazing. And they get on still, and yeah. they write beautifully together still. So when I auditioned the second time for them, um, Julia, uh, Phil Scott had snuck me a little piece of script saying, look, this lady is deputy leader of the opposition, but she's got a really interesting voice, and we think you need to... Just have a look. And um, and then I watched the archival video of Valerie playing her the year before, which was hilarious. And Gary Scale, I think, was in that show as well. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, I can't do it, I can't do it. And that was when I was talking about before the um, I was backstage at Belvoir and the stage manager, both stage managers were going, that doesn't sound anything like her. You need to, to go and do more work. And the, the irony was I'd done lots of hours of work at this point. Because that's the thing you want to hear, isn't it? No, you don't sound anything <laughs> like her, you know. <laughs> Those girls are my dear friends because they said that. <laughs> and so I went back and that, that's when I found the work choices phrases. And and then I knew that to get that sound, you kind of have to lurch your head forward a little bit. Then you notice that's what she does with her head. Then you notice what that, that's what she does with her bottom. And then so you get the walk and the cl- slightly turned in knees. I mean, I have a bit of those anyway, so I knew... It's not to criticise anyone's anatomy or or their voice, actually, but I was glad she had a unique voice. Then, so that that then the boys wrote a song for that Wharf Review that was actually all on the one note. So it was um out in the west was a storm and pecker lay or lay or lay he ho. 
Leahy who or something. Was it was Maria von Trapp not being able to undulate the the melody? But actually, you know, Julia, she's got a really lovely voice. It's actually quite. Um, it's quite. It's probably not even as um, Australian as this. Uh, yeah, she's more velvety now because she doesn't have to force her point. I will not be lectured to by that man. Yes, he's looking at his watch. She, she did kind of sound like that at the time. But we all soften with age. Absolutely. At home with Julia, the popularity of that character, you, uh, the, the four-part sitcom on the ABC... Uh, Gillard was still in office. Was that difficult? To that was very of... early. It was very early in her office. Right. But she was still Prime Minister, though, wasn't Oh, she? she'd only just been elected. Yeah, yeah. Was it, was it difficult to portray in a comic, as a comic persona the, uh, the person who was, was leading the country at, at the time? I mean, I know satire, you know, um, people in public places are right for, for the picking, etc. But... Uh, would we necessarily see that? Actually, we did all through the Trump presidency. We saw all sorts of lampooning happening on TV, etc., didn't we? So forget He's that question. So Tell me about it, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> He's slightly a cra- He's slightly crazier than her, is what I would say. Yeah. Uh, eccentric. Let's call it eccentric mm. um, for Donald Trump, and that that is a gift for performers. Um, with Julia. I mean, if you looked into that series, you'd see that clearly we were very fond of her. Uh, We were very proud that a woman had been put in that place. Unfortunately for her, her front bench had decided it was her and also knew it would carry with that a lot of unpopular reception because... Um, she was usurping someone midterm, and it, uh, the public wouldn't like it because she wasn't voted in. That's why she went very quickly to election, and and the media jumped on it. First woman, but not put there the right way. What was very interesting about that series? I mean, we loved her, and we couldn't say that in interviews. But if you watch the series, it's clearly a love letter. If you, uh, and, but I couldn't also say that in interviews because it's boring. I become the actor who's deciding to tell the audience what to think politically, and that's that's not interesting. The artist has to remain neutral, really. It's just that that was our bent on her in the show. I wanted to. I was very excited that a woman was a protagonist, so that was very interesting in the writing room. Um, and the two boys I wrote it with, Rick Kalowski and Phil Lloyd, were very generous with me with that because I was not experienced in writing television. We'd written little cabarets and some theatre stuff, as you and I discussed before, and Bite My Chili and for Sidon Cafe and, and for the old fits and things like that. But I hadn't written television format before, and they were very... They were very encouraging in terms of how to write it, even in the programs that you have to use, you know, final draft and all this sort of stuff, and then to submit it for um, draft reviews, etc., etc. We wanted to write a character that was warm and funny, but also was the Prime Minister of Australia, but was a woman. It was really early days of women being lead characters. We'd had Kath and Kim, and I was so grateful, and we'd had others, but um, until that point, um, women leads, and, and certainly in politics, was, was, a, was a rare thing. So it was a, it was a gift and we wanted to honour it properly. Um, so, so one, we were fond of her, but secondly, we wanted to write about a love story. We didn't want to necessarily write 
um, what she was doing in politics because that was going to be covered by the chaser and everyone else that was doing political satire. We would let that bleed into her um, after hours life, which is where the comedy came in. So that's why the three independents came to dinner at her, her place and they negotiated joining the party again there. And, um, and, and then Tim became the focus because it, it was so unusual. It was all... We, we look back at it now and it's nothing because also there have been leading businesswomen with male partners. Um, it was just the first time in that regard that we thought, let's quickly write something about it. Um, I had a friend in, who was producing for television and they rang me and said, you need to do your jewel. I'd done it for stage already and I'd also done it for television sketch comedy in a series called Double Take and it was a song called Nine to Five and it went viral when she got into Parliament so that had done a little bit of the groundwork for me and my fellow um, television producer friend Greg Quayle um, had seen that and seen how well it had done and also seen her on stage in the Wharf Review and he said, you've got to do it and you've got to do it now. Let's go and have a meeting with the ABC. The ABC only had four slots that year and there was such volatility around her leadership that, we, that I remember the ABC saying, well, yes, we sort of have to do it now otherwise she may not be Prime Minister in six months. Debbie Lee was part of that um, conversation. And, and I remember our producer saying, well, better fucking do it now. Anyway, I think we had 18 days to shoot four episodes. We'd written um, synopses for six episodes, but we just had to take what they could give us because I think the chaser were coming straight in after us anyway. And so it was a, rom- it was a romantic comedy. It was very funny. Um, I, it was I, fun. I, I, I loved it. But but was there concern, and perhaps this is what I was trying to allude to earlier in my muffled question, that you would be putting people offside or noses out of joint or um, disrespecting the office of Prime Minister? The, the image I'm thinking about is that scene where Tim and Julia, the characters, not the real people, have just made love under the Australian flag. Um, I'd hate to see John and Jeanette in a bedroom scene in a TV show. Um what were, the, what were the thoughts around that particular scene? Because it was very brave to, to actually go there. Yeah. Well, they're real people. and With real lives, yeah. We, and, and what happens... What's wrong with making love under an Australian flag? Actually, we weren't satirising the flag. We were... It was a little bit... It was, it was, that particular scene from a writing perspective is about having a personal life in the office on the weekend um, with some... With, I think Bill Shorten was knocking on the door, wanted to get through some things about policy, um, which would happen. We just decided to show the love life. There was no nude body. There were our shoulders showing. It was actually a very... Um, it was a very... Um, uh, what do you call that? It was a decent scene in terms of anything. Modest. Yeah, modest, yeah. Um, I think the vets were upset us using the flag and I can understand that and to them I apologise for any offence unintentionally but, but we've caused. we've seen the flag also in Australia turned into board shorts and budgie smugglers and Oh it's been used in violence. towels and yeah, The Cronulla absolutely. riots it mm. was used in, in terrible ways but but yes it did attract um, from the Murdoch press it did attract some negative attention because we'd shifted the eye of um, the female Prime Minister from being criticised to this warm, funny protagonist. And they that very cleverly decided to attack us for disrespecting the chair of Prime Minister 
so much and so therefore she is worthy of disrespect so she's still not a great leader and that was their twist on us they even tried to link um, the fact that we'd written six synopses but there were only four slots available in the programming of ABC that year to, um, to the fact that we had been cancelled and we had we certainly hadn't we only ever made four episodes mm-hmm. once we got to pre-production we only ever budgeted for four episodes so there were all kinds of little twists and then I'd also I mean for any liberal leaning um, radio interviews I they would ask me to be Julia for them and then try to twist it into a skewering of her and I had to quickly sort of back out and jolly them along to not make it nasty. I had to protect her as a character and as the Prime Minister many, many times and I I don't know how successfully I did that but they definitely wanted to pin something on me as her regularly. It was very interesting, the media's response. If they had watched the series, they would have been attacking me for being too left. But they obviously didn't want to go that route because that's giving airtime to the left. It was That was fascinating. Have you ever met Julia? Yeah. yeah. So eventually I met her at a writer's festival and Jane Caro, bless her cotton socks, also another staunch education advocate, um, said, Julia's over there, Julia's... And I ran out of the tent. I just thought, oh, my God, she's going to hate me because I'd heard she'd watched the first episode and then the media trying to get the negative spin out of her and saying, what do you think about a series being... And she um, famously said, I'm not going to give them any publicity. And rightly so. Why should she? And she didn't watch any more of it. And so I ran out because I knew she'd be upset and I didn't want to put her on the spot in front of her friends and... And, and so I had a chat to Jane outside the tent. And I said, look, she's going to be wary of me thinking that we wrote negatively about her. And I know she didn't watch the last three episodes. And I know she would have loved it if she did. So you probably have to explain that, that we're fans before you say, I am here. So she did anyway. And I knew I had about 30 seconds to say who I was and how I felt about her once she met me. Because she did sort of pull back in her chair. And I said, it was lovely to meet you, Julia. And... I want to thank you for for opening up the arts to women's roles and protagonists in the writing room and um, we really loved your work as Prime Minister and I really love your work as an education advocate all around the world and contrary to what the media would have you believe, we're big fans. And I just could never say that in interviews because then it would be like I was a political commentator and mm. I'm not, mm. I'm an actor. Mm. And she just really calmed down and had a nice little chat with me and we got a photo and I was very grateful. Great. Yeah. Was a, that was fun. So who are your comic heroes? Oh. Who do you look up to as um, being a really accomplished... Madeline Kahn. Yeah. Barry Humphreys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Jane Turner, Gina Riley. Um... All our beautiful comics who grace the stage, Anne Edmonds, uh, people who bravely do stand-up all the time. Because stand-up and then, of course, you, you know, you, you Madeleine Kahn, uh, Catherine Kim, uh, Barry Humphreys, uh, they're adopting characters. Yeah. Um, they've created these character personas. Yeah. Oh, the Umbilical Brothers. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, whom I've loved, the brief moments I get to work Which with. Which hark back to vaudeville and... Uh, yeah. We did a children's show together for 
Sesame Street, like a long time ago, for BBC, gosh, um, for Sesame Street, and um, and, and Blink Films under the auspice of um, uh, Michael Bouchier was executive producer of that, and um, that yeah, that was fun. I learned, I mean, physical physical comedy with no language can travel around the world, and we try and put a bit of that in all our performances because physical speaks louder than than sound sometimes it's it, yeah it, it's interesting because sometimes the physicality of a role is what you come up with first and sometimes it's sound it's like the origins of the universe <laughs> what were they <laughs> is it light is it sound some say it's sound We've talked about the voice as as uh, key to the characters, etc. You look at someone like Humphreys when he assumes Dame mm. Edna, and it's a whole physicality, even down to the sort of slightly uh, humped shoulders, um, mm. the way he places his feet, mm. hands. Mm. Do you remember that te- that show he did in England? And it was a it was one of his later shows. It was maybe about 10, 15 years ago, and he interviewed people and Little Britain came on and Alan Alda came on and and they couldn't get words out and I remember him saying she, Dame Edna, saying to Little Britain the boys in Little Britain um, oh I um, oh yes I've heard, I, I caught your show and um, and um, and they said oh did you did you get to see it? Yes I, I, I arrived late and I left early, but um, you know, it's like yes, and they couldn't contain themselves. But for instance, when he's being feminine, he folds his ankles at the bottom of his those amazingly long legs, and those 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 older lady shoes or elegant lady shoes are just sort of paired over to the side with a forty-five degree angle and a low heel and a pointed toe, and I just think, oh, perfect, you know, Dame that keeps her legs together. Uh, right down to the ankles, but but just the uncomfortability of even to the degree of the uncomfortability of heels, and and his lips as Dame Edna, oh the heaven aren't they? And they speaking out the side of his mouth and oh, yes. lots of lots of almost kissing. Yeah, and and we're not amused that sort of puckering of the lips and and, and the thing that he does <laughs> he, he lifts his one corner of his top lip up and extreme left or extreme right, whichever it is, whichever you're and the bottom lip is doing the opposite. I mean, it's just, there's so many things that allude to different pictures and different different me- mechanisms of the body that, oh, is it a master of detail? Yeah. Well, the new Wharf Review is called Looking for Albanese, which um, <laughs> it's quite appropriate at the moment, isn't <laughs> yeah, it, as yeah. you look for, yeah. for Albanese. Uh, are we allowed to uh, learn who you might be assuming in in the show? Yeah, um, Allegra. Who were your challenges, Allegra, Allegra? Allegra Spender. Now she's a challenge because she's a really nice girl. I mean, the ones that are nice people, uh, they're harder to do. And also, uh, uh, what what is what's a hook on her is that she's a woman always at work. She's um, from a school that is a very hard working high school, and. Um, and she's Carla Zampatti's daughter, so she looks beautiful. Uh, so we've, we've, we're approaching her with elegance, style and diligence. Um, Katie Gallagher, who is the Minister for Finance, very interesting lady. I'm watching some clips of her when she's in opposition. And she's got a very still energy that is just, she's all about business. 
um, she doesn't. She does get angry about what's happening in the Senate or what's happening in Q and A uh, question time, but she sticks to. She doesn't get derailed too much in cracking jokes in Parliament. She's very. She's ve- being finance minister. She's very responsible budget person. Um, she's right. She's performing a poem written by Drew. It's really interesting. I'd be. It's so of the time about. She's the first woman in the woman in treasury portfolio. So, it's it's an interesting challenge for you all in that um, there's a whole bunch of new characters now, cast yeah. new characters yeah. because there's a new government. Yeah. Um. And and part of the success of your impersonations uh, is recognition from the audience yeah. because yeah. these uh, these character these people yeah. uh, haven't had the exposure yet that. Um, Someone yeah. like the last government, we we all know Michaelia Cash, yeah, yeah, and uh, Scomo, and uh, all those rat bags. Well, uh, what the boys, what the writers have always done is said, "Hi, I'm Katie Gallagher." Right, okay, <laughs> just so people know who you are. Or, or, uh, you know, um, the name of Allegra Spender may or may not be on the billboard above me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. You are absolutely right. But in every, but they're great, great. Um, Solutions to, to helping yeah. assist the audience. Yeah. I think in a sketch, in a series of sketches where you have three to five minutes to 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 introduce the characters and then and then say something that they may say and then also put a political point forward from a satirical point of view, um, you've got to get the name out there up front. So the other characters often say, Hi Peter Ryers, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> You know your way around a microphone. We need all the help we can get. Yeah, so do I. So you open on the 12th of November and play through to, I think you've just been extended maybe, you've got new shows happening or or something. Oh, cool. I've got the 11th of December here, but um, I think on social media I read that there's there's new shows being added. Ah, yes, Uh, I think we pretty much go through to Christmas Eve. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. at the Seymour Centre. And uh, audience, well, I'm sure you're already heavily booked. It's a, it's a popular event in the Sydney calendar. It's amazing, isn't it? I, it's those boys. I, I do think it's the writers sticking together. That, that's a that's a longevity thing. Mr Biggins, Mr Forsyth, Mr Scott. Yeah. Um, who are obviously great collaborators because collaboration isn't always easy. No, and they have their arguments, I'm sure, but they get over them very quickly. I was just talking about this to someone else this morning. Their the grace of working with each other, with their differences, is quite amazing. Uh, and together... Uh, you know, watching them edit each other's material because we did a run on Friday afternoon, and we need to make the show shorter. And they're both, they're all very gracious about what needs to be snipped and what may disappear and what stays. They're really good sports about it, actually, and I think that's been the key to a successful working relationship. That and they each have different voices. Um, they each bring completely different sense of humour, and the combination of it gets um, erudite and wickedly funny in equal proportions mixed in there and then poetic as well well how fortunate are you to be working with them and how fortunate are they to be working with you mm, Mandy Bishop um, you are extraordinary um, thank and, you for saying um, this, this has been a while this conversation in happening um, oh yeah I've avoided it like a play you have <laughs> why I don't know you, you, you know when you do a, a crate my career is not the same as anyone else's I know and I'm spo- I suppose every artist feels the same mm. It's just sometimes you think, well, what can I offer people coming after me? I guess every life story is an interesting Absolutely. sort of yep. something to glean a few pointers from, mainly um, do better. 
Um, Chookers for the show, and lovely to see you again, Mandy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mandy joins the Wharf Review team of Jonathan Biggins, Drew Forsyth, and Phil Scott once again as Soft Tread Enterprises presents Looking for Albanese. This much-anticipated event on our calendars commences its Sydney season at the Seymour Centre from November 12th and through December. Bookings through SeymourCentre.com or through their box office on 9061 5344. The world is grim, what better time to have a laugh. Thanks for joining us in this episode, my guest today, Mandy Bishop, and if you search through the Stages archive, you can also find my conversations with Jonathan Biggins, Drew Forsyth and Phil Scott in their respective episodes. I'm Peter Ayers, keep well, keep warm, stay safe, And I'll catch you next time on Stages.